All of the Bible is beautiful, but there are certain passages that when you read them, they just make you feel comforted. They give you a sense of comfort and ease and remind us of the kindness of our great and our wonderful God. And Matthew chapter 11 is one of those places. And we're going to spend our time looking at Matthew chapter 11, particularly verses 25 through 30 in our study tonight. There are so many reasons that we rejoice. I'm reminded of the passage in the Magnificat or the Song of Mary where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. We have lots of reasons to rejoice. We are excited about our upcoming gospel meeting. We rejoice about that. We rejoice about the the families, and I've said it before, we'll say it again. We are so pleased to have young families, and the sound of children crying or toddlers doing what they do is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. We are glad to have that going on in our assemblies. We're excited about this being the second Sunday evening service we've had now in what six seven months and we're excited about that we rejoice about that we rejoice that we have new members uh, to have them join with us in this work we are just excited to be a part of a church that is hopefully growing in what god wants us to do i want us to focus our attention on matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30 are familiar because those are the comforting beautiful words of jesus But I want us to also to consider tonight the idea of trading one yoke for another um, by looking at the entire context of what Jesus was stating there. When we take the yoke of Jesus Christ, I'm arguing tonight that we are actually ridding ourselves of another yoke. I wrote down something that David said this morning. And he made a number of good points. All of his points were good. But he says we are not to just not do something, but we are to actually do something. And we oftentimes talk about the idea of repentance. I think that sometimes, and we prayed about repentance tonight, did we not? That not only do we repent of our sin or our sinful activity or of our sinful habits, but we must replace it with something else that is not there. Take, for instance, someone who, as we talked about in our class this morning, who is addicted to some sort of a substance, some sort of a drug. You can't just say to that person, stop doing that when they are addicted without replacing it with something that is wholesome and something that is good. You can't take someone in the world who's been involved in the world and say, "Uh, yoke yourself to Jesus without ridding themselves of the old things to which they were yoked and replacing it with the wholesome things. In choosing to serve Jesus Christ, we are choosing not to serve something else. Our brother said it this morning that when Adam chose to listen to Eve, the great sin was that he chose to make Eve a God. Granted, a little g God, but he chose to put God in a place that was second to someone or something else. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, we are familiar with the statement made by Jesus where he says, we cannot serve God and mammon. No one can serve two masters. We must choose one or the other. Jesus famously said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, and basically made the argument that you are either yoked to party A or to party B. You get to choose to whom you are yoked. God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that former doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, that is, you were yoked to sin, now you are becoming slaves of righteousness. So we are all yoked to something. We understand what it means to be yoked, even those of us who never grew up on a farm and those of us who thought that milk just come from the store. Uh, We understand that a yoke is this device wherein two animals are harnessed together and they have to work in concert with one another. We're familiar with passages where Paul said to the church at Corinth and to those Christians, do not be unequally yoked with someone. And the idea of not being yoked with someone of the world is so that we can be dedicated to a common cause. I would like to argue tonight that we are making a trade, that we make a trade from the things of the world to the things of a spiritual nature, which leads us to a number of important conclusions. First and foremost, when I read Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, this beautiful text with which we are familiar, in fact, we even sing songs about verses 28, 29, and 30 in popular invitation songs, and that is that anyone and everyone can follow Jesus the Christ. That is a key biblical theme wherein no one is prohibited and no one prohibits you from serving God. And you've probably run across individuals who would say, I can't serve God because of various things in my past. Some would say, well, my past family, because my family was not religious. I can't be religious either because my family didn't go to church or they weren't spiritually minded. Neither can I be. You get this a lot. The idea of past sin. You don't know about my past, someone says. You don't understand the mistakes and the regrets that I have in my past. And those are things that God would not forgive me of. And that's when we take him to great passages where Paul says, I was a wretched man in Romans chapter 7, but thanks be to God that I have been saved by his grace. Some would say, well, I'm not smart enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. Have you ever known of an individual who says, I'll become a Christian, but only when I know enough of this book. And then 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, they say, I still don't know enough. If you're waiting to, quote, know enough, and your measurement of knowing enough is knowing this entire book front and back and everything that's in it, then we are all in a world of hurt. Because we are all constantly learning and being students of this great volume. None of these things are able to prevent a person from growing up to be what Jesus wants us to be. But going back to Matthew chapter 11, I would argue, and I think you would agree with me, that this was a message contrary to the popular belief in the teachings of the time of those surrounding Jesus, particularly some of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and some of the scribes. Notice, if you would here, in verse 25 and 26, he says, At that time, Jesus answered and says, I'm thankful to God the Father that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. 
Jesus being thankful is not a negative against the wise and prudent, but rather it is two, it seems to me, very important things. Number one, we need to acknowledge that Jesus is here in this particular text as recorded by Matthew, pointing out that those who trust in human wisdom won't get it. That's one of the central messages in 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3. The idea is that we cannot trust in the wisdom of men in order to get us where we need to be spiritually. In fact, if you listen to the average televangelist, if you listen to the average doctrine, if you look at the, the pamphlets that are left at a bank ATM or yesterday I was in a local store and there were individuals going around handing out pamphlets for a local denomination, I went ahead and took a look at it. And if you follow the letter of what they're saying, you're not doing what is right because they aren't teaching the things in the Bible. They're teaching things that are false. And while we appreciate the zeal of individuals, we need to make sure that that zeal is matched up with, as we pray tonight, a truth in the way that we worship, study, and practice God's will. We also need to appreciate that Jesus is on this occasion teaching that God accepts anyone who is willing to serve him. Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where there's that long list of individuals that were involved in sin, past tense. And Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you. That is, in the past you were involved in adultery, that you were involved in fornication, that you were involved in lying. These are all things that were in these people's past, but it didn't prevent them from moving forward. The great news and something that causes us to rejoice is that no matter what your past is, it is not so sordid, it is not so ugly, it is not so disgusting that God says, I can't work with you. That's incredible news. That's something to truly rejoice and to be excited in. The fact that you and I know what God wants from us, that's not only good for us, but it seemed good to him. I love that phrase. If you want to underline that in your Bible, it seemed good to him. God says, I'm glad that you're serving me because that seems good to me that you're serving me. Secondly, I want us to appreciate that when it comes to Jesus, rather than him being an obstacle to our faith, he's actually the way. We are familiar with the famous text in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. We're familiar with that particular passage. But we need to acknowledge that the Pharisees and the the leaders in the first century were against Jesus because he threatened them. They had a belief, and they had an argument based on that belief. Their belief was simple. Jesus of Nazareth is not the Christ. Now, we all believe, as Christians, that Jesus is the Christ. That's what separates us from the world, in part because we believe that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. Their argument was that he is an obstacle to fulfilling the law. In fact... I didn't measure it, but I would guess that one-fifth, 20% of the New Testament letters are dedicated to Paul primarily, speaking to individuals, having them understand that being a Jew or being a Jewish Christian or being a Christian who's come from the Jewish faith doesn't make you better than someone else. 
And being a non-Jewish Christian doesn't make you inferior to others. In fact, Romans 1 verse 16 famously says that the gospel is the power into salvation for all who would believe. And that word all is very powerful, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. What Jesus was wanting these people to see, and what I would challenge he wants us to see today, is that rather than him being the obstacle, those who broadcasted their own righteousness, they were the real problem. So the people who were proudly standing up and puffed up and saying, look how important we are, and Jesus is the distraction. Jesus comes along in this particular text, and he says, you guys are the problem. You're the obstacle to real faith. Notice, if you would, that Jesus makes a statement, and really it's a series of three statements here in verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. More about that in just a second. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. What a powerful verse. Jesus is saying things that He knows full well is going to get the opposition against Him ramped up. You know, Jesus was not afraid of confrontation. And one of the things that we've been discussing in our Sunday morning Bible class in terms of how does Jesus talk to people, is he's not afraid of confrontation. When he was approached by Satan in Matthew chapter 4 in our Bible study this morning, you don't see Jesus saying, well, Mr. Satan, I really don't know how to answer you right now. No, he was bold and he says, I'm ready to answer you with the words of Scripture because I am confident in the God that I serve. And that same kind of zeal is important for us. Notice, if you would, that really Jesus is making a threefold statement here. First and foremost, he says, all things, all things, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, the Creator. All things, not just some. Jesus' authority is all-inclusive. He has all authority. Matthew chapter 28 says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. He says, I am the one who's been granted that. Which means, secondly, he makes this statement, by my Father. Jesus didn't take power. There wasn't a power struggle in heaven before Jesus came down to the earth where Jesus says, give me that power. And the Father says, no, I don't want you to have that power. The Father says, I'm willing to give you the power and the authority because I want it to rest in you. Because after all, you are going to be the way, the, the wherewithal where individuals will come to be saved. And thirdly, we need to appreciate where he says, accept the Son. Jesus knows that he's the only way to make contact with the Father. I recently posted that concept in our Friday fact that I put out on social media. And one of the reasons that I did so is because I knew for sure that there would be someone in the world that would object to it. Sure enough, there are people who object to the notion that Jesus is the only way to make contact with the Father. Do you realize that that is a politically incorrect thing to say? That Jesus is the only way to salvation? But yet, we are going to boldly proclaim Jesus is the only way to the Father. We say that not because we want to make a lot of friends, but we say it because we want to defend the truth. And because we'd rather be a friend of God and an enemy of the average person than the alternative. We need to also appreciate, thirdly, that Jesus not being an obstacle is actually the solution. 
Here's the question in verse 28. Who are those who labor and are heavy laden? And there are different ways of correctly answering that question. I'm not suggesting that it is inappropriate for us to talk about someone in sin today and say that they are heavy laden, that they are laboring in the world and they need to labor for Christ. After all, we're trading one yoke for another. But let me suggest that particularly that there are uh, two or three big groups or audiences of individuals who really need to hear this teaching. In the first century, and certainly in the 21st century, those who are subjected to false teaching need to hear the truth. They are heavy laden. They may have a doctrine that is simpler than ours. After all, in our doctrine, we don't have to get wet. In our doctrine, we don't have to go to church. In our doctrine, we don't have to maybe uh, uh, talk a certain way or or conduct ourselves in a certain way because after all, we've been cleansed by grace and once saved, always saved. But they are heavy laden with false doctrine in a different way. Think about that in the first century by considering a passage in the book of Acts chapter 15 where we'll briefly go out of Matthew and then we'll come back to it here in just a moment. But in the book of Acts chapter 15, notice what is written here. It says, Therefore... Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, this was a great conflict that was happening in the early church. And these early inspired individuals and apostles were standing up to defend the truth. But those who have been subjected to false teaching, they are laboring and they are heavy laden. And Jesus has come to me. I've got a better way for you. I've got an improvement for you. Secondly, Jesus says, I want to speak to those who are stressed with worldly care. Now, it is important, and we acknowledge this on a routine basis. And in fact, uh, Brother Shane talked about this in his invitation talk just a couple of days ago, that Jesus did not guarantee uh, our earthly lives would be perfect or void of trouble. We know that when we come out of the waters of baptism and everyone is excited, and we, we can you imagine someone being baptized right now and what would you air hug them, I guess? I don't know what you do. Maybe we just throw caution aside. But we'd be excited no matter what, right? That person may have a bad day tomorrow, that person may have difficulties tomorrow. That person may have challenges tomorrow because becoming a Christian doesn't guarantee that life is just going to go splendidly because we have a long list of people who are struggling physically and financially and spiritually and they are Christians for whom we care deeply. But Jesus does allow us the great comfort of openly communicating with God the Father and causes us to trust him. And let me suggest thirdly that Jesus is speaking to an audience of those who have regrets over past sin. Now, I would argue that that includes all of us because we all have regrets. In fact, you could make the argument, and please understand what I'm saying, that if you don't have some regret in your life, then your attitude isn't right. Because all of us have this sense of, I wish I would not have said that, done that, went there, or whatever the case may have been in our past. 
Hopefully, as we mature as Christians, we have fewer regrets because our spiritual maturity kicks in. But we all have regrets. But Christians have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice. And we need to appreciate that he makes it so that we can move forward. I made reference to this in a sermon a few months ago. And I used the analogy that an old preacher used years ago. That when you, when you take your past regrets, your past mistakes, and your past guilt, and you carry it with you going forward. It's akin to carrying a, a pillowcase filled with bricks in it with you wherever you go. And as you travel down the road and as you go to one place or another place, you say, why am I so exhausted? Well, maybe it's because you're carrying around that big bag of bricks or that pillowcase filled with bricks. Now it doesn't make you look silly. It, it absolutely detracts from and distracts from all that you are supposed to be doing. Instead, leave that in the past where it belongs. There's so much that we could say from Philippians chapter 3 on that particular subject. But I think it's important to acknowledge that Paul himself says that I'm going to press forward to the mark that is ahead and not on the past. We need to acknowledge that true rest comes only from Jesus Christ. That's true in this life. Now a perspective shift is needed to really get rest in this life. You're not going to get it in a physical sense maybe. Uh, we made reference to those of you who have young children. You may be saying, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't ever get rest. <laughs> but we do get rest, do we not, in this life where we have that peace that goes beyond all of our understanding. But it is certainly true in the next life where no perspective is needed. Well, let me share with you a fourth thing that I think that we get from this particular passage. And that is... When we read the loving words of Jesus where he says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that it reminds me that I want to be like Jesus, that I want to be like him, talk like him, I want to look like him, I want to look in the mirror and as I grow older, I think I'm looking more like Jesus, not in a, not in a pompous way, but I want to look more like my father. Because isn't that true in our physical way of life? You say, I look more like my mother every day. I look more like my father every day. I've said before that those of you that have not met my father, he really is good looking. And you would come to expect that based on looking at me as I grow older. But the fact of the matter is, is we must appreciate that we're trying to be a little bit more like Jesus every day. No other person should or could be a mentor like Jesus Christ. We are all mentoring one another. That was one of the points that was made as well earlier today. But the greatest mentor is Jesus. By taking his yoke, we choose to be linked. And I put that in quotes because think about what a yoke does. It links you together with something else. You got Jesus on the right and you on the left or vice versa, whichever side you are. And you're, you, there you are. And wherever Jesus goes, you go. And how frustrating it is for him when we want to go to the left and he wants to go to the right. He says, you're struggling with me. I'm trying to help you get to the right place. Stick with me and things will go well. What does it mean to be like him? Well, that's a sermon or two or three hundred. But let me suggest in just 60 seconds that being like Jesus means being gentle. Jesus began the great sermon on the mountaintop in that longest recorded sermon 
by talking about the importance of being meek and the importance of being humble. So can I and can you work at being a little more gentle or a little more humble? Those things are different, but they share some similarities with themselves, which is why Jesus lined them up, it seems to me, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. But is that something that you can work on, being just a little more gentle? What about this? Jesus is lowly. That's what he says. Jesus doesn't make statements about himself that aren't true. He says, I am lowly. Well, can I work at seeing others as more important? And as we pray together this evening, let us esteem others better than ourselves. The fact is, is I want to be like Jesus. Jesus says we have to learn to be like him. Did you notice that in verse 29? Verse 29 says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You know, learning sometimes isn't that fun. There's a reason why when we were in grade school, uh, we loved it when there were snow days. Uh, Those of you that experience snow days today, you do not understand the pain and torture of growing up in the 80s. And you had to get up early to see what was scrolling on the TV on one of those four channels I referenced to see if your school. And so you saw it, back to bed I go. (laughs) I had a whole day to myself. These days, you get notified electronically the day before, and everyone knows. But back then, that's not the way it was. Well, the fact is, is we don't always like to learn, to go to school, to do our homework. But we want to learn to be like Jesus. I'm speaking to a group of people who, on a Sunday evening, could have gone and done a bunch of things. And what did you choose to do? What the world says you're doing is silly and just goofy. But what we know we are doing is learning more about Jesus and the way he is and the way he conducts himself. I want to be like Jesus, which means I want to learn to be like him. That also tells me it doesn't come naturally. I wish that algebra came naturally. I wish that calculus would have came naturally. And some of you who it does come natural for, I'm not right with you. <laughs> I had to work at it, and I still didn't do the best that I could have. But the fact of the matter is, is we learn things that don't come natural. Jesus had responsibilities. He had a yoke, and the same goes for us today. Let me conclude with this in a a negative statement and then we'll shift it over to the positive to conclude with. And that is, if I do not take the yoke of Christ, two things are going to happen. Number one, I'm not going to be like him. And number two, it goes all the way back to the very beginning. I will be yoked to something else. A person cannot say, well, I don't want to yoke myself to Jesus, but I also don't want to yoke myself to something else. Impossible. Cannot happen. You are either a slave of righteousness or you are a slave of sin, Romans 6, verses 16, 17, and 18. I didn't make that stuff up. This is no brilliant observation on my part. This is what the scriptures teach. And we are imploring each and every one of us, building up one another in the faith that we are about on occasions like this, to keep the yoke where it needs to be, tied to Jesus working with him in concert with him. Take my yoke upon you 
It is easy and my burden is light. You know what? As tough as being a Christian is from time to time, it is light. It is easy in the sense that we've got a God that will provide for us, take care of us, and acknowledge the good that we do. And by his grace, allow us to be saved. And so we conclude with the words of Jesus, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And he says, I'll give you rest. If you're tired tonight, not in the physical sense, because some of you are, and I understand that. But if you're tired in the spiritual sense of the world and of worldliness and of the ugliness associated with the carnal world, then we offer you Jesus the Christ because he gives rest. Take his yoke and you'll be glad that you did. There's not a single person who's going to get to heaven and say it just wasn't worth it. It'll never happen. We'll all look at each other and say it was, it was worth more than I thought it was. That's how great this place is. And that's how wonderful it is to bask in the glow of the eternal light of our God and Father Jesus and, and of his son Jesus. And so if we can help you by being baptized, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. Based on your repentance, we'll help you to replace it with good, wholesome stuff. If that's something you're ready to do, or the vast majority who are with us this evening are already Christians, but we want to offer you an opportunity to re-yoke yourself if that's necessary by praying for you and praying with you. If we can help you in any way, let us know while together we stand, while we sing.